From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, welcome to Bridging Philly. Those DNA testing kits can be lots of fun as people search for their lineage, but what happens when you find out you're not who you think you are? This happened to two Philadelphia women who I sat down with and we'll hear their stories. I was a white woman, a white person, right? So if these things came out, it was, where is this coming from? Sharaday Howard has our Newsmaker of the Week, a breast cancer surgeon who established a foundation to encourage holistic healing. Trying to call people in to the concept of what wellness can look like for all of us. It's not just for those who have means. Antoinette Lee's Philly Rising Changemaker this week is a nonprofit that works with youth to interrupt cycles of violence. Young people are working everywhere and no decision is made at Yeah Philly without young people. That's a half hour you don't want to miss. And it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. DNA testing kits have grown in popularity over the years, and for the most part, it's fun to find out your family lineage. But what happens when you find out that you're not who you thought you were at all? Lisa Swire and Donna Gary are both from Philadelphia. They have fascinating stories. They joined a group called Right to Know, co-founded by Kara Rubenstein and Alicia Weiss. The group helps people in this situation, and they all join us now. Lisa, let's start with you. Tell me why you decided to contact Right to Know, and what led up to all of this? In 2014, I was interested in doing my family tree for my family. I had spent, even years before that, um, doing research before everything became electronic. You know, I'd go to 10th and chestnut and sit in the archive, you know, the archives and go through the microfiche or whatever. And, um, and then, you know, I went to seminars. It was, it was a lot of work, right? It's a full-time job. Um, but then, you know, as years went on, things became more electronic and easy through ancestry. So I had decided I was going to do that again, um, and present it to my dad for Christmas because he always was very interested in, um, family and, um, where we came from. And you, of course, stories that you, he heard from his family, you don't know if it's true, right? He'd say, oh, we're from Ireland or we're from, from Dublin or whatever. And so, um, I started doing some research and I, um, contacted my mother because of some of the things I was, I was finding and I wanted her help. And she see, she did seem a little irritated, but I just nothing unusual, just, you know, I'm calling her and asking her all these questions about family. And so anyway, um, we drove down my family. I drove down, um, a couple of weeks before Christmas to see my family. And, um, I remember I, I had sent away for the DNA test, but I hadn't done it yet. I had gathered a lot of information from Ancestry and I was just going to present it to my dad and, you know, for his Christmas gift. So he was, it was in the morning, it was a Saturday morning and he was still sleeping. So I, there was a big box full of pictures of people I didn't know. And I brought them downstairs. My mom was in the kitchen and I just, I said, you know, I want to go through these pictures. You know, I had this idea, you know, I'm going to find all these family and I'm going to put it on our tree on Ancestry. And she just looked at me and said, why are you doing this? And I said, because I want to know where we come from, you know. And she said, that's what she turned to me and said, I'll never forget it. You will never know where you came from. And um, I'm not talking about this while he's still here, while he's still living. And so 
you know, when you hear that and I, I you know, I'm, I was in my forties, you know, early forties and it's like my whole life just flashed before my eyes, like everything that people said to me over the years, always real feeling like I look different than myself, like all this stuff. And I just was like, I just knew what she was. I just, it was, I was in shock. I said, well, did you steal me from the hospital? Cause I, I didn't know what to say. And she said, no, you're mine. You're my daughter. Um, as soon as we drove home that weekend, that DNA test was at my house. And I'm telling you, I don't even know if I even unpacked, I grabbed it. I said to my husband, let's read the directions. Tell me what I need to do. I mean, I spit in that cup and I took it to the mailbox before I even unpacked. Um, so six weeks later, you know, I'm sitting on the couch that night and I get the notification. My results came in and I open it up. And the first thing I see is Africa. <laughs> now, I grew up with two white parents. My dad's telling me we're from Ireland. Um, I knew I looked like my mom's side family. Her, her, her entire family has curly hair. So that wasn't unusual. But the fact that my skin was obviously more olive, they would say, and my hair was different in texture, you know, obviously different, um, and other features. And I had always been asked, you know, everywhere I went, what are you? Are you Hispanic? Are you black? Are you Hawaiian? Are you Middle Eastern? And it was almost like a relief. I would say it was like, you know, because I spent my entire childhood and adult life defending who my identity, right? Why do people keep asking me this? My dad's from Ireland. My mom is Scottish. You know, I'm white. Like, why do people, I mean, people come up to me and just start speaking Spanish to me. Like it, at, at a certain point, it just used to anger me. So um, I did confront my mom. We went into her room and she closed the door and she told me, you know, she had an affair. I mean, it was good to hear, you know, you know, you don't, you're, you kind of get nervous. Like you don't know was she raped? Was she, you know, um, but it was, he was married, had two kids already. She was married. Um, um, and then after that, I did send him a letter and then I took him probably at six weeks. He gave me a call. It was on Martin, Martin Luther King day. <laughs> but it, the interesting thing to me is he said, you know, he admitted what he did in this past. Obviously he's not the same person, but, um, he said, you know, I was just praying to God, uh, two weeks ago. He said, if I have any children out there, please reveal them to me. And he said, I got your letter two weeks later. Wow. So after you learned all of this, how did it make you feel to finally have an answer to all of those questions? I embraced it. I mean, I, I definitely identify myself as a person of color, biracial. So at this point, you say you embraced it. You embrace who you are. You... Did you always have a feeling somewhere in the back of your mind, okay, other than the fact that, all right, I might look a little different from my family, but did you actually feel a little different? Was there anything at all there that was different? I'm a, I sing. There, no, no one else in my family sing until I found out my biological, my you know, father's side of the family, like they all sing. And I remember like, if I got to the point where like there was too much soul coming out, it scared me. Because I was like, where is that coming from? You know, like I honestly, I mean, I was a white woman, a white person, right? So if these things like, you know, came out, it was, where does this coming from? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it kind of, um, but I believed what my, you know, I believe that's all I knew. I believe my parents. 
And you know what? We don't question our parents and, and we really shouldn't. So I get that. Wow. So Donna, share with me your story and why you decided to find out your ancestry. So I was nodding a lot because a lot of what Lisa was saying is everything I've kind of been through. The difference was that um, from as young as three, I probably always knew something was different. I just didn't know it was me. And that was from my mother. So she would drop little hints here and there. But one of the first things that she ever said to me was if anyone ever asks, tell them that you're black. And I remember thinking, why would somebody ask me that? So, but I, you know, I just assumed that was something that mom said, right? So same thing growing up, you know, when I was with my black friends, I was always, what are you? You know, you're mixed, you're not black. Um, I grew up in mostly um, white and black neighborhoods. So it was always mixed neighbors. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just what it was. And then I, it was the same thing, you know, always felt like I had to defend who I was. You know, my father, very, you know, he was, he was dark skinned. So I felt like I had his smile. So that was where I felt like he and I were definitely looked alike, but everybody else looked alike, but nobody looked like me and I didn't look like them. Um, and it was always like my mom was trying to find a place. Oh, see, you look like her and you look like her. And to me, I'm like, I don't see it. I don't get it, but nobody else saw it. So my mother was married to my father, the man I call my father, the man who raised me um, when she got pregnant with me. And what I know now is that my biological father too was married. Um, so once my mother got pregnant, she went on this campaign of, you know, she had to find someone that looked like, so her grandmother was half white and she immediately started saying, oh, you look just like her. So that's my foundation. That was what I thought I, you know, I was, but I'm thinking that was your grandmother. And for me to look like this, that was weird to me. And then my sister over me didn't look like her. My sister under me didn't look like her. Um, I had my first child a month after I turned 15. And after I had him, my oldest son, he had to have a surgery. He had a, um, a hernia. So St. Chris was down at second and Lehigh back then. And there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in the area. And so after I had him and he was okay from the surgery, I would get on the bus. I would get on the 23 trolley from Germantown and Hoarder and ride all the way down to Germantown and Lehigh, get off the trolley and walk down one side of Lehigh and up the other. Because I thought at home, the Puerto Ricans, they embraced me. Like I had friends. I mean, I didn't know anybody down there, but I felt at home. What I now know is that my biological family was there. Wow. So it's like you were almost drawn there. I was drawn there. And um, there's still certain parts of the city that when I go there, I feel like I've been there before. And I can't explain that. I did a DNA test finally. First, I did 23andMe. Nothing significant came up, but I started seeing that there were a lot of um, Hispanic names in my, my uh, DNA. Did the ancestry the same thing. And I, I met someone and she told me that, she said, Donna, what that means is that you, you know, somebody, one of your parents is Hispanic. So eventually we, we found out that it was my paternal side that was Hispanic. And we had tracked them down to a certain town in Puerto Rico. Um, and we found my paternal grandparents. Of course, they were deceased, but we found them. 
Unfortunately, by the time that I found out who my biological father was, he was deceased. He had died a year before my mother. It was able to trick a sibling into doing a DNA test. Um, and that's how I confirmed who my father was. That's a lot of information to take in. So I can imagine that you were probably stunned at all of these revelations, no? The shock is starting to wear off, but I was very much in shock from the time that I found out the truth. And now it's kind of like, who? I don't want to say who am I, but a part of me is what am I? You know, people still say, you couldn't tell. Like, you know, I have friends that say, you didn't know. No, I didn't know. I really did not know. My mom said I was Black. That's what I was. Wow. That is so revealing. Karen and Alicia, talk to me about Right to Know. When did that group start? Alicia and I co-founded Right to Know three years ago because after our discoveries, I mean, I'm sure you've read my story. I found out I was raised thinking I was biracial, half Black, and I'm not. And so um, who grows up thinking they're one race and discovers they're not? It's the craziest thing in the world. And you feel very much alone. Um, And I looked for resources and there wasn't anything out there. Um, And people make these discoveries because they're adopted, because they're conceived through assisted reproduction, or because they had a non-paternal event or an NPE like um, Lisa and Donna have. So we created Right to Know, and we work in three main areas, education, mental health initiatives, and advocacy. And I will just say, you know, some of these things that they were talking about is so common and and people have a hard time understanding this, but the parent-child relationship is so sacred. You believe your parents, period. Alicia, so many people take these tests and there's so much to process. I can see why people need support. Absolutely, Raquel. I agree totally with you. As soon as I saw the results and realized that something was way off, I had a physiological response to it. I was sitting in the kitchen on at a bar stool and I literally was to the point of almost passing out that I had to hold on to the sides of the table just to keep myself stable because I was about to fall. I mean, I literally was about to pass out. It brings out more emotions, anger, grief, shock, everything that these ladies have have told you about too, on top of the ethnicity and cultural shift is absolutely, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing. But one of the things I think most important when I listen to these ladies is that they both had a sense somehow especially you, you know, um, Donna describing going through a neighborhood. It just unbelievable to me that you had that feeling and it just, you know, the intuition you had there knowing something is true about me here. Mm -hmm. Something is really true about me. And I I just want to say that if it weren't for us putting together, you mentioned about helping each other out the mentoring program that we have and Cara described for you. If we didn't have that, I think a lot of us would not know where to be. I can tell you, I've, I have now placed together hundreds of people for mentoring, and that has been such a successful program. It's all volunteer. It's grassroots. Uh, we work really hard to make sure we have the right people you know, with each other to, to speak about it. Usually it's somebody that's a little bit ahead of the game, that's known for maybe two, three years, their discovery, and they come alongside somebody and help them, get them through the crisis that they're in uh, mentally. Well, it's good to know that there is support available when people need it. So for more information on DNA tests and DNA surprises, you can contact Right to Know on their website, righttoknow.us. 
Lisa, Donna, Karen, and Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories on Bridging Philly. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. More than 5,000 from this area alone show you support them. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. An area breast cancer surgeon who's also a local LGBTQ activist of color established a foundation to encourage holistic healing. Sharaday Howard talks with Dr. Monique Gary. Dr. Monique Gary is one of only a handful of black women in our area who carries the title of both breast surgeon, oncologist, as well as director of a cancer program. And now she's adding farmer to that list with the hopes of healing her patients through surgery. Now Dr. Gary, also known as Dr. Mo, is focusing on healing their spirits in a more holistic way by taking it back to the earth with her new foundation, Still Rise Farm. And despite having so much going on, she made time to sit down with me at a Chestnut Hill Cafe to break it all down from surgery to farming. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you. You've got so much going on. You're doing this, you're doing that. You have a million titles. Let's start off with that. Just list off your titles. Well, first, I'm a Philly girl. I love it. Um, I am a breast surgical oncologist. So I'm a breast cancer surgeon. I direct a cancer program in Sellersville, Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia. I am a clinical associate professor of surgery at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm on clinical faculty at Temple University uh, School of Medicine as well. You've got so much going on. You've got several projects. You're everywhere. But what has your attention right now? What are you working on? Outside of that, I'm a farmer and I I purchased a 40 acre farm out in Upper Bucks County to really focus on helping patients, helping people uh, center their own wellness. Okay, so what I've learned is farming is hard and I'm reluctant to call myself a farmer because I'm a surgeon. That's my full time job. (laughs) A farmer surgeon. Here we go. But I have a farm and I have a plan and a dream and a hope to really help folks figure out what wellness looks like for them because I believe that it's not prescriptive. There's nothing I can write on a prescription pad that says take five of these and park your car at wellness, right? And love yourself. And love yourself, right? Especially after cancer. Like all the things that we do and then we say, okay, slap a pink tutu on and go walk down the street and, you know, live your best life. But it doesn't quite work that way for people with cancer, for people with chronic illnesses and for those of us who are just trying to get through our everyday lives and make good choices with our food, right? And our, our mental health. Outside of that, oh boy. So it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, or as I like to call it, Breast Cancer Action Month. And being a breast cancer surgeon and being in the minority of black female breast cancer surgeons, right? There's only th- three of us, I think, in Pennsylvania right now. And less than 2% of black and brown women are breast surgeons and surgical oncologists. So a lot of my focus this month is on breast cancer. It's on advocacy, awareness. It's on health equity because representation matters and there are so few of us in this space. But the statistics surrounding what's happening with black women and breast cancer is really astounding. So you're checking all the boxes. I'm trying. (laughs) It's a lot of boxes to check, but it all comes together, I think, when you look at the root cause of illness right and you think about what's making us sick and there's so many different things but what can we control we can control the what we put in our mouths we can control what we do with our bodies we can control our mindset and and those are the main things that i think we really need to focus on as a community not just as a black community not just as a queer community all my intersections not just as a woman but all of us there's something for everybody to take away from that our our birthright for our communities you know especially when you look at 
the queer community, right? When you look at the black queer community, nobody, still no one is talking about health equity in that space in meaningful, measurable ways. And it's so nice to see that the pendulum, because of George Floyd and, and the fact that, you know, uh, that, that race and health equity is, is in vogue right now, right? It's it's great that the, that the light is being shined on healthcare disparities. COVID did one good thing for us, I guess. But in the queer community, there's still so many disparities. There's still such a stigma. There's still such a gap between how a person feels in their body and how their medical professionals help them to feel about themselves and about their life and their future. And and I think that that too is an untapped area we need to be talking about. You know, we're we're out here we're jamming in Beyonce's Renaissance, right? But can we have a Renaissance for our health, right? So let's talk about intersectionality and maybe cross that into the fact that you have so many things going on at this farm. How are you addressing all of these things at your farm? So the farm, I, I like to call it an incubator farm because it's not like I'm growing crops and rows of corn to sell at the marketplace, right? But the purpose of this farm is for us to develop uh, and to work out the plans for what wellness looks like for various intersecting communities. So starting with the cancer community because I'm, I'm a cancer doctor, right? So cancer patients come out and they have retreats and we discuss mindfulness, we discuss nutrition, fishing. We're teaching people how to fish, literally teaching people how to fish. But but, uh, so starting with cancer patients, because by the time a cancer diagnosis happens, it, it life is compounded with everything else that's going on. And we saw that during COVID, right? Cancer didn't quarantine just because we did. It didn't. People got divorced. People were on drugs. People drank alcohol. COVID made everything worse. It made cancers worse, too. Exacerbated everything that we could have imagined. It's true. Depression, anxiety illness, sleeplessness, insomnia, overeating, all of our OCD, all our tendencies, all of our triggers, all our triggers got amplified like yeast, right? They're like, we're, we're here in this bakery. It, it rose like dough. And now we got some real challenges and people need solutions. So starting with the cancer population, but we've also extended to young people from Philly. So Camp Jill Scott came out and you know, we're girls high girls. Come on. Jill Scott represent, right? <laughs> now tell me about that. So these young people, it, I, let's say it this way. Uh, Camp Jill Scott is in its now 14th year of uh, programming for young people from Philadelphia. And the summer program this year looked to do a program that highlighted both uh, legacy and uh, land and um, mentoring and really helping these young people see what they can be. Because if you can't see it, you can't be it. So they came out to the farm and we spent a day planting herbs and, and taking herbs home with them and discussing the benefits of juicing and organic food, right? And a young lady came out and she said, I don't like kale. And I said, have you ever tried it? She said, no. I said, well, it tastes kind of like lettuce. Maybe you should try it. And she tried it. She said, oh, I do like kale and so we gave them juices my my friends run a juice company called so fresh and so green awesome they drank get your beat on 24 karat magic right and then the young people made their own i said okay now i want you to take these ingredients and you make a juice and what is it good for what's it going to do in the body and we talked about that we talked about mindfulness and meditation maybe before exams before altercation so how do we make good choices how do we stop ourselves in the moment and say wait wait let me pull myself back and that's not something we talk about with our kids in inner city philly but we should should because a little bit of mindfulness before an exam 
right? The test scores are better. Students are more centered. We make better choices. We're less likely to get involved in fights. Like there's there's a role for this in, in our cities and in our youth. And that's kind of what you're doing. You're kind of teaching people to relearn how they're living. Some of us, myself included, we're learning things for the first time even. You know, who knew if we liked Pilates? Who knew how to juice or if you like juice, if you really like turmeric or not? Who knew what kale was good for and really begin to, to heal your own cells? And so that's the purpose of this farm. I call it a living learning laboratory. And, and we're going to figure it out together. Fitness can be for us too. Mindfulness can be for us. Nutrition can be for us. And that's why I love this movement of urban farmers and what's happening in and around the Philadelphia area right now is an example for what should be happening around the country talking about food as medicine. You know, I have, I, I say a lot, eat your medicine, right? Because our food should be our medicine and we don't have enough doctors who are helping patients and people in the community to really understand and embrace that principle. And you do it in such a way that people trust you as if you're a part of the family. They've actually began calling you Dr. Mo. So when I hear, I, I know you as Monique but the rest of the world knows you as Dr. Mo. How did that happen and why do you think that stuck? Boy, you know, I think it came from uh, the advocacy work that I do in the breast cancer space. So I'm on the medical advisory board for about five or six breast cancer organizations. And it's because I have a problem saying, no, I'm not gonna be, you know, I'm not gonna lie about that. Everybody's working on a thing and I'm working on mine. But I said yes to being the bridge to the community. And as soon as I did that and started to get involved with people who had had chronic illnesses and who wanted to hear from a doctor and wanted to connect with that doctor and say, how can we get our lived experience through to more doctors? How can we let doctors know how to reach us and how to do a better job? And there, you know, we, we sat around our kitchen tables, literally, and had these conversations. And they were like, you know, you like family, you Dr. Mo. That's it. <laughs> so that's how I became Dr. Mo. When you sit down and you have that one-on-one at your farm, what goes through your mind? What goes through your heart? Why are you there? I'm there because it could easily be me. You know, cancer runs in my family. It has affected our my entire family. It affects our community. I recognize the humanity in that person. Ravage our communities. I watch it, you know, continue to rob and steal so much from people, not just the person who's affected with it, but their entire ecosystem, their generations, their finances, their legacy. Everything gets affected by this. And so for me, I get a chance to try to get some of that back for the person, the patient in front of me. But taking it a step further, how can I amplify that message before cancer happens? How can we prevent, how can we change the conversation from cancer treatment and surgery and chemo and radiation to really what wellness looks like? What does healthy look like? How does it feel? And I think that we don't know that. And for a community that has such earned medical mistrust, we know what distrust feels like. But do we know what it feels like to have a really healthy relationship with medicine, with our doctors, with food, with wellness, with good mental health? And I want to mirror that and model that. That's my ultimate goal with all of this. So preempt the strike before things get bad. So you're kind of like a Robin Hood working (laughs) in medicine. You're taking it back, you're taking it all back. Love it. You know what? I'll be the Pied Piper of wellness. You know, I'm I'm okay with that. I love that. I love that. And these young people are capable and they want to know. They're soaking it up and they're watching us. So we have to set a different example rather than just repeating the mantras of, of disease, of death, of, of mistrust. Of, we can write something new. We can change this narrative for our communities. I never thought I'd be out in Upper Bucks County, Pennsylvania with this farm, with people who don't look like me, who don't necessarily vote like I vote or believe like I believe, any of this stuff. There's a common place where we all sort of 
can meet and grow from there as a community. And the farm represents that literal common place where we can come together as community and we can grow something good, right? And then rise into something different, rise into wellness. Thank you for being here. The Philly Rising Changemaker is sponsored by Penn Medicine Heart and Vascular Center, performing the most advanced heart procedures in the region. Hey y'all, KYW's Antoinette Lee here, back from maternity leave with another Philly Rising. Now this week we're highlighting a group called Yeah Philly. This group is made up of youth and I always see them out in the community doing some pretty amazing things like food giveaways and such. Well, they had a big win in recent weeks, a win that could make a big difference for a lot of young people through throughout our state. I spoke with their executive director, Kendra Vanderwater. Here's more. Yeah, Philly stands for Youth Empowerment Advancement Hangout. When it comes to the gun violence crisis in Philadelphia, this organization is one of those at the forefront fighting against it. So our organization really uplifts young people ages 15 to 24 um, who are impacted directly by violence, who are caught in the cycle of violence, who live in West and Southwest Philadelphia. And we have a priority focus on those in the legal system who have violent charges against them. Kendra Vanderwater, executive director of Yeah Philly, says on any given day, you can find them around the city fighting against the roots of the issue through avenues like food giveaways, job and conflict resolution programs, and more. Yeah, so young people are working everywhere. They are every, They are on panels, they are tabling events, they work at our spaces, they are paid on staff, they are paid wages, um, they get paid internships, and no decision is made at Yeah Philly without young people. So they lead, um, They and it's really just us as adults helping implement. Their latest fight has been in Harrisburg for something you may not expect why people need birth certificates, why Philadelphia has this issue where thousands of kids cannot get their own birth certificates. That's right, birth certificates. Vanderwater says access to them created a barrier to essential things like employment for many of their kids. If you get your social security card, you need your original birth certificate. If you are employed, you need your birth certificate. You need these vital documents to do all of these things. A passport, birth certificate. So you kids cannot move forward in life if they do not have these documents. And that is why this is so important, because we can't say, you know, we want young people to get jobs and be productive and do all of these things if we are not advocating for them to get the things that they need to do those things. She says it was a month long fight with a lot of meetings and pleading their case to legislators. In recent weeks, their advocacy led to change. So the state Department of Health actually changed their regulations to implement all of the things that we asked for to where um, if you are 16 and 17, you can get your own birth certificate on your own, thankfully, without parental consent. If you are in the juvenile legal system, if you are in the system at all, if you are on probation, if you are in foster care, if you're experiencing homeless, they have a separate application to get your birth certificate easier, but also for free. So they waive the fee. Vanderwater called the win transformational, not just for youth in Philadelphia, but across the state of Pennsylvania. She says their group has found success through listening to the needs of young people, no matter their circumstances. We had 46 percent of young people get out of the system completely. And so all of this stems from loving on young people, giving them what they need and being consistent in being a trusting adult. They learn how to ask for what they need. They need money. They need love. They need structure. They need certain discipline. And all of these things come from 
our program. So that's what we're doing. And we're definitely countering that narrative because she hopes to see more of that from Philly leaders to help address the city's gun violence problem. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. As always, if you know someone we should highlight, someone making a difference in your community, please reach out to us. I'm easy to find. You can message me on Twitter at ARLeeOnAir. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our podcast producer, Tom Rickert, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.